As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull, joined as always by my friend and colleague, Paul Tenorio. Paul, we've, we've got a lot to discuss today. Some serious, serious movement at the top of the U.S. Soccer Federation. A lot to dive into in that regard. But first and foremost, the allocation order. The mechanism that inspired the name of this very podcast is gone. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a monumental announcement because when we started this podcast, Sam, we had one small goal and it was for this podcast to, well, first of all, to be the podcast of choice, obviously, um, <laughs> obviously. but I guess we had two we, goals. We wanted to help usher in some change. Wait, Namely, also to another goal this... to become the world's foremost labor relations podcast. That's right. We became, yeah. uh, I don't think that was our goal. It just happened. We tripped and fell into that one. It was my goal. Um, but we really wanted to just outlast the allocation order and, and lo and behold, Sam, one day this podcast will end and you and I will no longer discuss, you know, the stupidity of MLS. Um, but when that day comes, we will know that we outlasted the allocation order and that's what matters most. You know, you can take, you can take away my, my dignity. You can take away my job. You can take away my money my relationships, everything. But you'll never be able to take that from me. Never. <laughs> and and you know what? Discovery rights, you should be quaking in your boots right now. <laughs> Discovery wrongs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so to answer a few quick kind of housekeeping questions. No, we are not changing the name of the podcast. We will no. never change the name of this podcast. No. We'll be allocation disorder forever. This is our uh, legacy. And uh, actually, I think that's the only housekeeping item I have. (laughs) (laughs) Sam texted me when I threw it out there just to see if anyone else had as creative a name as allocation disorder for for the allocation order no longer existing. And he saw my tweet and he texted me, we're not changing the name of the podcast. And I was like, I know, Sam, calm down. (laughs) Although we did get a couple of good suggestions. Yeah, there Um, were some good ones. John Hollinger. Yeah. He think I think he came up with my favorite Uh, gam session. Yeah, that was a game session is pretty good. Um, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, 
All right, Paul, I think we've spent enough time on the allocation order, disorder, conundrum, machinations. Wait, can I do one more thing on this? When yeah. they announced that it died, they called it some other version of the allocation order. It felt like it was a shot at us. Allocation directly, okay? process? Yeah, they called it some, some BS. Well, it's a, it it's, is a whole process. No, but it was always the called order. the allocate The order... Like, let's do it. They, do they know, call when it you, allocation when you ranking? Lay this thing to rest. Like, you know, do it properly. It's the allocation order. Okay. That's what's being put. That's what I just want to say. Okay. The allocation order. I'm That's glad. What, I'm glad you cleared right. that up. I was shaken to my core when I saw that announcement. I, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, I know what happened was, can I just say to, to uh, go behind the scenes here on the most important news of the day or, or of the week, um, which is not. Of the year, I think. Next. Of the yeah, year, but yeah, I, I sent Sam a, a a message on Slack, and I said the allocation order is is gone. It's going away. It's dead. And like two minutes later, Sam wrote back, and he wrote, "Wait, seriously?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, it's going to be announced in a in a little bit here." And and Sam was like, "I, I I'm shaken to my core. <laughs> I was shook. <laughs> you were shook. I'm still um, a bit shook." But I did feel at least like that you found out the right way. That you found out from from somebody you're, yeah, you're via close. Slack message. You couldn't have even given me the courtesy of a phone call. Yeah, I just the right. I didn't want to have to hear the reaction. You know, I needed some distance from it. <sighs> Whatever. I thought we were friends. Um, speaking of shaken to the core, U.S. soccer with some pretty significant shakeups at the core of its organization. Wow. Federation you're announced earlier on Thursday that Ernie Stewart has departed his post as sporting director. He is headed to. PSV Eindhoven in Holland, where of course he was born and raised, uh, and Brian McBride, USMNT GM. He's also departing. This leaves the Federation with two massive holes at the top of its men's national team structure and overall sporting structure, in the case of Stewart, to go along with the vacancy that they already have at head coach Anthony Hudson, interim manager, his first game Wednesday night. In LA, a 2-1 loss to Serbia. He will be interim coach for the foreseeable future. Probably, Paul, up to and including the Nations League Final Four this summer and the CONCACAF Gold Cup this summer. So he'll be around for a while, it looks like. Yeah. I think they gotta get to the Nations League Final Four first. Right? They, they do, got, they, they do, but they should be able they should be able to manage that. Yeah. Um Huge news, Sam. It has major, major implications for what this national team is going to look like for the 2026 World Cup. And, you know, I think what's interesting for me out of this whole thing is that people have been lobbying for major, major changes in the wake of this Gio Reyna situation. Um, and by people, I mean like fans on Twitter that we see all the time and in our comment section of our U.S. national team stories. Well, and you don't read those, so you don't see those. I, I rarely go into the comments. Yeah. I only do it when you force me. Um or actually when my wife like is laughing so hard because it's like her favorite thing to read about my stories is, is people bashing me in the comment section. Um, I'm impressed she reads your stories. I don't know if she reads the stories. She goes straight to the comments. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not joking. Um, I, I just, you know, I have a little bit of a feeling. It, what I think will will be kind of put to the test here is the notion of like, is the grass greener on the other side here? And, and, you know, there is a, a real faction of people who think the U.S. national team made significant progress, both in what Ernie Stewart did behind the scenes within the federation around the men's national team from when he took over in the post-Kuva um, mess, 
and Cuba. on on the field in what Greg Berhalter accomplished <laughs> with a team that qualified for the World Cup as the youngest national team in the world. And so now I think we'll see. Like there are some really, really, really big decisions that are going to be made over, over this program over the next few months. And I, I, you know, I also think it's it's notable that after that whole interim year under Dave Sarakin in 2018 when they missed the World Cup, we're going to get at least a half a year, maybe eight months of the same situation. And and Sam, you and I were around this team for this entire cycle. And uh, for me, starting with Sarakin and, and obviously covering them before that as well, but like really, really around them. And that year was like, okay, it was good. Dave Sarakin introduced these young players. And it was, it was purgatory. It was purgatory. But it was a purgatory. They missed out on legitimate development of the team. They missed out on really integrating those players and creating a style of play, creating an identity. And then with COVID, it, it really put them under a crunch where some of those adjustments that needed to be made, that needed to be figured out, happened way further down the road than they probably would have if they had that year with a permanent coach. And I think you risk you risk losing some more of the growth here over the next few months as you go through this search. Yeah. And it's so it's it's it is a like this is not an insignificant piece of news. It is it is a really a, a big shakeup and I think it has the chance to cause concern for the 2026 World Cup cycle. So to add to that point, Paul, um, Greg Berhalter was hired in December 2018. His first camp was in January 2019. I'm not great at math, but there were almost four years between the start of that first camp and the start of the World Cup in November 2022. That's already more time than exists between right now, today, Thursday, January 2022, 2026 January 26th and the start of the 2026 World Cup probably in June 26 we're less than three and a half years out so the longer this drags on the shorter that window becomes obviously there's no qualifying this time around um, maybe there's a Copa America next summer maybe not there will be an Olympics next summer a U20 World Cup this summer um, Gold Cup and Nations Leagues along the way Paul before we really dive into what be, what might come next, I think it's important to have an understanding of what the sporting director and general manager roles actually are for the U.S. national team. Because everyone's like, oh, this is such an opportunity. It's a blank canvas. The program can move forward and do something bold and interesting. All of that is correct. Not saying it's not. It's a little bit daunting, like you were saying, but it's also a good chance to, to kind of do something bigger. Um, but what exactly will it entail? We wrote a piece about this on The Athletic. Not sure if it'll be out by the time you're listening to this. I hope it will. Um, sort of detailing it. And we found out a little bit in the course of reporting. But basically, Ernie Stewart's job, his most important job, is the hiring of national team head coaches, senior national team head coaches. The secondary element, not even the secondary element, but the primary element of his job the primary focus of his job is to kind of implement a system and a style and a way of being existing an identity identity. That's Who do you want to be? For. And, and integrating that and implementing it across the various national teams, hiring coaches who can do that, making sure everybody's on the same page, making sure you can really build something moving forward. It doesn't have to be the same exact tactics from the U 17s to the senior team. But you should know your principles of play. You should ideally be teaching the same things. You should be thinking about development practices. You should be thinking about, okay, if we don't have a striker on the senior team right now, what are we doing on the lower levels to develop them? 
so on and so forth. It's not a job that um, is just down to U.S. soccer, but they can do a lot of stuff in those areas. So those are the things that you have to think about. There are also a ton of other administrative elements of the job. It's not just men's and women's national teams that, that we think about and watch, um, but it's futsal. It's beach national teams. It's Paralympic national teams. It's, it's the entire extended national team program. There's referee administration that Stuart was doing. There's grassroots work that he was doing. Coaching it's big, education. It's a big, wide, encompassing job that goes way beyond just kind of the headline work that we would think of. So U.S. soccer has to decide if that's what they want this role to be in the future, if they want to split that up, how they want to manage that. Um, and they also have to decide what they want to do with the men's national team general manager. Brian McBride was in that post, I believe, for about three years. Uh, everyone that we've spoken to, Paul, is basically saying that there were a lot of redundancies between McBride, Stewart, and Burhalter, And then McBride was sort of relegated to not doing a ton. His most important function was hiring youth national team coaches, but that process was, you know, signed off on always and, and assisted by Stewart. Uh, you know, there was some managing of clubs that national team players play at, um, working with those relationships. I'm sure there were other things that he did day to day, but I would be surprised, frankly, if they even replaced Brian McBride. I think this is going to come down to the sporting director and then the sporting director will go on to hire the head coach. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, you spelled that out. I mean, look, it's an important role in kind of saying this is who we want to be. This is who the U.S. is, right? Like this is what our team identity should be. Do we want to be a bunker and run team? Do we want to be a possession team? Do we want to be a transition team? I think eventually the U.S. landed on that identity of being a transition team. But then a part of that is like the processes that you put into place. Like, do you want to be data driven? I think U.S. soccer said yes under Stewart and Berhalter and had a pretty um, – strong data and analytics team at U.S. soccer? Or do they want to be less of a data team going forward? You know, are they going to hire a sporting director who doesn't lean as much into that? Are they going to have the same ideas that Ernie Stewart had about all the coaches being together um, at, at U.S. Physically. soccer house in yeah. Chicago so that they could discuss what they're doing, talk about players up and down the pyramid, know where certain players were in the pecking order, those types of things. That's That was a big part of what Ernie Stewart did. And he hired a coach that he believed could could fulfill that and sam you wrote about it and we talked about it with everything going going on in regards to renewing greg berhalter or not that ernie stewart and greg berhalter were both process driven people and that a big part of what ernie stewart liked about greg berhalter is that he was willing to share information and resources between the men's national team program and the women's national team programs between the youth programs to to have integration on the the um, sports medical, science side sports of science, things, yeah. the medical side, all of that, you know, and that that was really important to Ernie Stewart with whatever the coaching hire would be that somebody fit that. Well, is it going to be the same with the next sporting director? Is that important enough to U.S. soccer to make sure that they spell out that that's what they want from a sporting director? Obviously, you know, I think it's been interesting that after 2017, a lot of the criticisms of U.S. soccer was that Sunil Gulati was kind of single-handedly making sporting decisions, hiring Jurgen Klinsmann, eventually hiring Bruce Arena to replace Klinsman. Um, and they wanted soccer people making soccer decisions, quote-unquote. That brought in Ernie Stewart and eventually Greg Berhalter and Brian McBride, all of whom kind of played in the same era of U.S. soccer. Now the criticism is there's too much of that uh, institutional knowledge and background within U.S. soccer, and you want to go away from that. So do you 
when you talk about what candidates are available for this job, do you downgrade people based on the fact that they played for the national team or featured or have been on a U.S. soccer board? Do you look only abroad to try to get a different vibe, a different feel, and you go back to kind of some of the tensions that existed when Jurgen Klinsmann was both head coach and technical director of U.S. soccer? The um, glory days. Two jobs that competed with each other, right? Your technical director is about the long term. The coach is about the short term. Um, so all of these questions are going to swirl around this job and, and not just around the person for the job, but what does U.S. soccer want from that person? Do they want the same type of leadership that Ernie Stewart provided? Do they ask for the next sporting director to do some of the stuff Ernie Stewart was doing in regards to referee administration, coaching education, and those types of things? Or do they scale back and say, listen, your job is, you know, more of what the GM job is for Kate Margraff, that you're a, a men's national team oriented leader. Um, though it sounds like and with hiring sportsology, and we'll get to that, I'm sure later, that this is an overview of how they do everything. And is it working? And what should we do differently now that we have these two holes to fill and potentially just one of them, however they go? Um, and try to try to figure out like whether the structure is correct right now. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that, and I want to dive in on that in a bit. But I think one thing that I've seen a decent amount of, actually two things that I wanted to address that I've seen a decent amount of. One, did the, what was your word, Paul? Imbroglio? <laughs> Imbruglio. Is that how you pronounce it? Imbruglio? Either way, it's a, it's a real $5 word, that one. Yeah, um, good one though. Fits. Did did the scandal, did the drama surrounding Burhalter and Gio Reyna and Claudio and Danielle Reyna uh, that Stewart was, you know, involved in? I, I would say McBride. he was, he was were... not, and, and McBride as well. We don't know if they were. They certainly weren't the primary cause of the drama. We don't know if they fl- fanned the flames or not. Um, did that play a role in these departures? U.S. Soccer is saying no, it did not play a role. In, those, in their departures. They said that in their statement. They reiterated that. Cindy Parler-Cone, president and CEO JT Baston, on a call earlier on Thursday. Excuse me, Batson, I said. Um, correcting myself there. Uh, I believe that to be true, Paul. I don't know that everybody will. Uh, McBride said in a statement that he made the decision to step down from his post when his contract expired in October. Um, so that was obviously well before any of the drama involving Berhalter and Reyna. Um, Stewart, maybe it played a little bit of a role, but I think there were other factors at play that were probably more significant for him. He was, he was reportedly under contract through 2026 with U.S. soccer, but his family, his wife and kids, have been in Holland the entire time he's been working for the Federation, which is, you know, four and a half years now. That's that's a long time to do a long distance family life uh, where you're living in Chicago and your family is in, on the other side of the Atlantic ocean. Uh, so getting a job back home with them at a big, big, big club in Europe and in Holland, um, you know, I think that probably played more of a role, but you know, this drama unfolding saying, you know what? I'm not sure I really want to deal with this anymore. Um, that was probably part of the consideration. I mean, PSV is an attractive job, right? Yeah. But U.S. soccer right now is a less attractive job, too, with what's going on. Like, the like the attractiveness of this position... For a sporting? Oh, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. Currently, for Ernie Stewart, yeah. in regards to what's going on, 
like certainly I would expect that when you're weighing things, you're like, do I really want to keep dealing with all this stuff? Or versus going closer to my yep. family at a major club that competes for trophies and for Europe to play in Europe every single year, where that's the expectation we're at a club like PSV. So um a couple a couple of interesting notes too that we dug up in the course of our reporting. Um Stuart, you know, had spoken with a couple of Dutch clubs, multiple Dutch clubs, well before the World Cup about executive roles over there. Um, and he was also in the running for the Atlanta United president gig that ended up going to Garth Lagerwey, according to multiple sources that we that we chatted with. Um, so this is, you know, he was a guy that was seen as attractive to, to clubs around the world. Yeah, I mean, he he, you know, I think for for some people they believe like Ernie Stewart put the the pieces in place for a foundation in Philadelphia that Ernst Tanner then built upon and turned it into a, a, I think a Ernst Tanner club. has improved upon it significantly. Yeah, I mean, took it and built it and took it further, right? Much and then, further. You know, I think but I again, I spoke to some people today in regards to like working on this story that said that, you know, they believe that Ernie Stewart basically rebuilt this national team program from a very bad place to a, a much better, a much healthier one, um, which makes sense. I mean, we know what that national team program was like when they missed the world cup. Right. And it was damaged and it needed to, to, to be cleaned up. And I think the processes behind the scenes are better. The communication is better. Um, it's those more professional. Organizational, it's more professional. Yeah. The things we don't see as often are, are far different and far improved compared to where they were in 2017. Doesn't mean that they can't get better. Doesn't mean that there isn't somebody out there that can make it better. Um, but, you know, I think he did a decent job and, and now we'll see what happens for him at PSV. But, you know, Sam, it takes us to that next level of like, okay, now what? You know, you, everyone's wanted the change. They felt like, you know, this national team should have beaten the Netherlands and gone to the World Cup final basically is what it feels like every time we log on to Twitter. Um, Twitter isn't real life, Paul. That's not what everyone thinks. But, you know, what What do you do now? If you're U.S. soccer, where are you looking for your next sporting director? Who are the names that fit the bill to, to build upon the identity and to, to maximize the potential of this, this young group that's now going to be, hopefully, all of them entering their primes and playing well and playing for the U.S. in 2026? Well, that's a good question. And that's something that Cindy Parlocone and JT Batson need to figure out in conjunction with Sportsology, <laughs> who doesn't have the best track record uh, in these sorts of things, especially when it comes to MLS. So that's kind of an interesting note, an element to this entire process as well. Um, Paul, I think, one, they need to work fast because the longer this drags out, the longer it will take to hire a head coach. They can't hire a head coach until they hire a sporting director. And if you're not going to hire a sporting director, like Parlo, Parlo Cohn said that they want to have one in place by the start of the Women's World Cup in late July. Um, if you don't do that until then, you're probably looking at at least August, beginning of August to hire a head coach. At that point, you know, European seasons are starting up again. And you've probably missed out on some coaches who came onto the market and then moved off the market. And that, to me, would be pretty bad. That's not something you want. You want to be able to move faster than that. I think you want to be able to get the sporting director hire in place no later. Uh, I don't know. May 1st sound reasonable to you? Yeah, Three I mean, months? to me, it's, it's shocking that they're talking about hiring a coach at the end of the summer. 
like their goal should be to have a coach in place by the Gold Cup because then you're yeah. taking advantage of the, which the is, coaching cycle. Which begins towards the end of June. Yeah. You're taking advantage of that coaching cycle that opens up in the summer when the European season ends. Mm-hmm. You're, you have your sporting director in place ready to make a hire. Maybe it's coming. Maybe that person's coming from Europe, you know, and, and you don't lose. And it's a valuable, it's a valuable tournament for a new coach to integrate the system and get to know the players and and all of those things. And they need to, this is one of those moments where you need to take a breath and step back and take a look at your own recent history and talk to the people who are around the program and talk and even just go look at the public quotes that are out there. Listen to our podcast about it, you know, the, from Cuba to Qatar about how, (laughs) you know, they really felt like as well of as good of a job as Dave did in that position there was a lot he couldn't do as an interim manager and th- there were missed opportunities. Don't let the history, don't let history repeat itself here. Yeah. And you know, you and I were both advocates after the world cup of giving like the stars off for a while and not having them come into the gold cup, not having them come into nation's league. But that was before you're making a coaching change like that to me was like, if Greg Berhalter's back, it's a good way to give everyone to take, uh, you know, have yeah, a breath. We said, other. if you're bringing Berhalter back, then right. give them off. Like yeah. if you're bringing a new, new coach, like having those weeks together, it's the same reason why Tata kept his team together for the gold cup this past summer to try to have that time together to work together on yeah. things ahead of a tournament like this. For me, that's like one of the more shocking things out of the press conference today is the timeline that, that it's now the end of January you're telling me that you can't get a hire done before August for, for coach like that and sporting director. Like this is a, to me, it would be a mistake. And I think that they need, you know, Cindy Barley Cohen said, we don't want to rush it. This is a really important decision. Which sure. Is true. You don't want to rush it. You also don't want to take too long. You, you don't want to take too long. Cause it's, that's also a mistake. You can be fast and responsible cycle. at the same time. <laughs> I mean, teams do it all the time. Yeah. Teams have to hire sporting directors on, condensed timelines and you know there are ways to do this efficiently and well and i think that u.s soccer really needs to consider what that time frame looks like for for both of these hires i agree paul let's take a quick break we're going to talk more about this in the next segment lots more to come on the shake up atop u.s soccer stay with us allocation disorder looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder, talking about the U.S. soccer shakeup. Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride are gone. There is no permanent head coach. Three very important jobs, maybe two very important jobs, uh, are open atop the structure for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, Paul, one of the things that we need to remember and everyone needs to remember regarding these jobs and who might one day fill them, whether that's in two months or five months, is the financial element at play here. U.S. soccer 
according to their latest filings, which I believe were the, for the fiscal year 2021, Greg Berhalter made $1.3 million that year and Ernie Stewart made $800,000 that year. I, you know, this is based on conversations I've had with, with different people in different fields or different positions over the years, $800,000 is I think a very good and competitive salary for a soccer executive, basically anywhere in the world. Um, I don't think salary will be a severely limiting factor for the sporting director. $1.3 million for a head coach is a little bit of a different scenario. If you're going to go after a big name, top level experienced guy, they're going to want more money than that. And I don't know that U.S. soccer has that money to spend. So let's talk about what more money means. Like when we're talking about the coaching position and you hear names like Zidane and Mourinho, you're talking $10 million coaches. You're talking about Roberto Martinez. Is it that high? Yeah. I, don't, I haven't even familiar. I mean, Mourinho maybe not now at Roma, but I, I'm not willing to rule it out. Pep, you're talking 20 million plus. Yeah. And that's what Jose was making before in the Premier League. So th- this isn't like a small jump. Even I was told by some people who would know that Roberto Martinez is asking price, not in this most recent round, but in previous job interviews, was well north of 1.3 million. Like, more like than six. 4x you know okay. so this isn't like a, a small difference like u.s soccer budget for coach right now is, is significantly lower than the the names that we hear kind of casually batted around of u.s soccer should go higher you know this guy or that guy i don't know what like yogi love made for for germany but i would imagine it was more than 1.3 million dollars a year um and so that has to be kept in mind i think mm-hmm. sam for the sporting director position, well, I think it'll be natural to say, well, if we don't want, you know, uh, another ex national team player in this position, let's go get the best sporting director in MLS. Well, the jobs are different. So for example, we mentioned Ernst Tanner earlier and, and how he's been able to improve Philadelphia since he took over. Well, some of the things that he's the, he's best at doing, which is spotting players, recruiting them, negotiating for them, signing them on the salary cap, like those aren't responsibilities for the sporting director of U.S. soccer. There's recruitment elements, sure, of dual nationals, but it's not the same thing as recruiting players. Uh, you have a, a limited pool. You have guys with a passport that fit, and then you try to find the best ones at those positions that you can bring in. And, and yeah, there's a level of recruitment, but it's not the same. You know, the administrative side is usually a little bit heavier. You have way more day-to-day and game-to-game responsibilities as a sporting director in a club than you will as a sporting director of a national team. So that has to be in the back of your mind as well when we think through potential candidates and also desire, you know, what people are going to want to take a national team sporting director job. And, you know, will, will it be attractive enough? Like, for example, like I think Peter Vermees is a good example of somebody who checks the boxes that we talked about earlier, has built a discernible and and identifiable. And he talked with us soccer about the GM position, I believe when they were hiring for Stewart initially in 2018. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, I think Peter wanted both jobs, right? He wanted to be the sporting director and the head coach, which is what Jurgen had been for U.S. soccer. And U.S. soccer wanted to get away from one person in charge. But like, is the sporting director of U.S. soccer an attractive enough job to walk away from being the coach and CSO of Sporting Kansas City where you from, run everything? From what I understand, it would require a pay cut if he was making a steward's <laughs> right. level of salary. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, those types of those types of questions have to be asked as well. So, it, you know, when you make your list of guys who may, maybe are going to be considered, 
You know, do you want Carlos Bocanegra, who has been under fire in Atlanta for the rosters he's built, but has experience at U.S. Soccer? He's on the board. Of, he sat on the board of directors. He's part of the bid committee that that brought the World Cup to to North America in 2026. The administrative side, he's very familiar with the politics of that that aspect of U.S. Soccer. Um, but it, does he does he go take you right back into the area that you don't like as a former national team captain who's in those same cycles. Do you look at some, you know, even somebody like Dennis DeClosa, who used to run the national teams for Mexico and then was a sporting director in the U S with the galaxy. And now is at Feyenoord where he took Feyenoord to their first European cup final in 20 years and Feyenoord sitting atop the table, the air divisier. Why would you walk away from Feyenoord right now? If you're Dennis DeClosa to be the sporting director of us soccer. So, you know, that for me has been the challenge as we are writing this story of, of putting names that will be considered, but then asking, do they fit? Would they leave their job? Would they take a pay cut? Would they want, you know, the responsibilities that would be put on them? Would they, would they be a fit for those responsibilities? It's, it's not an, it's not an easy task now facing us soccer. And, and you think about all the different types of coaches that those, those people would respectively look at like the, the candidate that Carlos Bocanegra would look at versus like what, Oliver Bierhoff would be looking at if you hired him, who was just recently fired by Germany. You know, like there is so many different changes. You went and got Dane Murphy, who was successful with Barnsley and Nottingham Forest in England. You know, he's an American. He worked briefly in MLS, but like the candidates he's going to look at are probably way different than the candidate that Peter Vermees would look at. So I really feel like this is just such a significant moment in, in kind of how the person you hire is going to think about that national team coaching position and think about the sporting director role and like the different directions that this national team program could go in the next few months. And that to me is probably part of the reason why Parlo Cohn was saying this might take a long time because it's going to be hard to find somebody that ticks all those boxes and is interested in the job. And, you know, you're going to be able to get out of contract in their current situation as well. There's a lot to do there. Uh, and I think for a lot of reasons, I mean, personally speaking for me, the allure, if I'm an executive, the allure of the 2026 world cup is significant, especially if I'm an American person, but in terms of a day to day job function perspective, I think running a club is way more interesting than running a national team sporting program. Like there's, it's more fun to go out and try and sign players and get into transfer negotiations than it is to like deal with coaching education and referee programs. I don't want to do that stuff. That doesn't sound enjoyable. It's not as sexy. Definitely not as sexy. And and so, you know, and, and that's, that sort of leads me to, to what one person who, you know, is familiar with how us soccer and this job works told me earlier. And, and that, that person said that U.S. soccer is going to end up with the most qualified candidate that isn't currently employed. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is, that's a potential reality here. Uh, and, and we'll see. You know, I think Ernie Stewart, this was attractive for him for a few different reasons. But I, I think Philadelphia at the time, he was making the move to U.S. soccer. I'm guessing his salary went way up when he moved from the union to U.S. soccer. Are you going to be able to attract that same type of person? Like, I, I don't know. 
the salaries in MLS for executives have gotten higher over the last four yeah. and a half years. I mean, and some of the best qualified ones, like John Thornton, is a president and GM, right? So that means his salary jumps up, his responsibility mm-hmm. jumps up. You know, are, can you make the job attractive enough to to woo now, somebody? That's a, like that's a downgrade job for John yeah, Thornton. right. I mean, he's yeah. at, in he's in a California kit, you know. So it's like you get into that. I mean, it's the same conversation as Peter Vermees. Why would he leave? Mm-hmm. You know, why would he leave? And and especially when you also know, yes, you're walking into being the sporting director of a, of a U.S. men's national team, a U.S. women's national team going to a World Cup immediately after you're hired and then a men's national yeah. team hosting a World Cup and the, the massive, massive potential well, and then hopefully hosting women's World Cup soon after that. And those, that's all attractive. You're also walking into this like yeah. current storm. Although that current storm abates real fast if you just make the decision and not retain Greg Berhalter. Kind of. Some of it does, sure. But I think, you know, you're still going to get the same level of buzz and hype when Gio comes in for the first time. You're st- no, his parents aren't no. going anywhere. His there, parents aren't the, going the anywhere. Le- the level of buzz and hype, if he comes in and Berhalter is there, is yes. infinitely it'll, more. It'll be, if it'll he comes be in more. It'll be there. more, but the, it's not like it's going to go away. No, completely. but it, it, won't be, it won't be that big of a deal. Um, okay. Anyhow, we've been talking about this through the lens of the men's program. We cover the men's team. Um, so it's natural that I think we go that route, but I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on the other side. We mentioned that we would be surprised, both of us, if Brian McBride's role was even replaced. I think that'll just end up as a vacancy. The women's national team does have a general manager in Kate Markgraf. Um, somebody that I was speaking to earlier was basically telling me that, hey, even if the Federation decides to not re- replace McBride, don't expect that to mean any changes in terms of duties on the women's side. I think they're happy with, with what Mark Graff is doing. I think they're happy with the amount of responsibility that she has in, in, in her job. Um, and I think they have a good balance and less overlapping, um, I guess, less redundancies uh, between her and Vladko Andonovsky, the head coach, than there were on the men's side. Um, I'm curious, Paul, if they do decide to go this route, where they just hire a sporting director, and not hire a men's GM. How do they position that? How do they message that? Like it or not, U.S. soccer is very sensitive to questions of equality. Um, obviously, there was you know the equal pay lawsuit, um, things that they're that they're having to pay out millions of dollars for, <laughs> um, and, and the settlement and dispute and, and all of that, and and they're conscious of wanting to have symmetry on the men's and women's side. Um, With that, I'm sort of thinking about, okay, how would I do this? And for me, I don't think it really makes sense to have a men's GM. I think it does make sense to have a women's GM, but I think it makes the most sense to just have two equal positions. You can call them men's national team GM and women's national team GM. You can call them men's national team sporting director and women's national team sporting director. Have two of them, have them on the same level of the org chart, have somebody else kind of be your, I don't know, more of a chief administrative officer, which I think is something that the, the Federation had in the past. I can't quite remember. But have someone else in a position like that to handle more of the coaching education, the referee stuff, all of that stuff that I was talking about earlier that wouldn't be that much fun. <laughs> and obviously those three people need to be working as a team. They can't be off in their own silos. They're each responsible for their own thing but they need to be on the same page and working together and implementing the same sorts of things. Um, But to me, that makes the most sense because I think having 
a sporting director, unless that person is just going to be the admin and the two GMs are going to run the show. Like I think having a sporting director and two GMs is kind of, it's kind of too much. It's unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, what's interesting. You spoke about that, that idea of like equal pay and all of that. Kate Margraf made $500,000 according to the last, um, statements that U.S. Soccer had for the fiscal year 2021. As we mentioned earlier, Ernie Stewart made 800000 and um, Brian McBride made about $340,000, $350,000 a year hmm. in that neighborhood. So um, the question would be, if you do create an equal level with Kate Margraf, you know, is that going to be dropping the salary down to be equal? Is it going to be bumping Kate Margraf up to make sure you're equal? And how does that impact quality? But I, I, I agree with you that it feels like there should be that, that the requirement should be that the men's, the head of the men's program and the head of the women's program work together under, under the president and the CEO, right, of U.S. soccer, that mm-hmm. there is cooperation and communication, but mm-hmm. that, there, that there are these two distinct hierarchies, that there doesn't need to be a sporting director in charge of men's and women's and then no GM. And I think it's also worth noting that one of the reasons why there might have been redundancies between Stuart McBride and Burhalter is because of how Burhalter works. Right. He was very involved in setting the culture of the national team, which is what one of the responsibilities said when Brian McBride was hired. He was very involved in maintaining communication. That's with so the club team. Sorry, to that, that that is that is a typical. I think most national team coaches are going to be running responsibilities of communicating with the clubs where their players are, communicating with the players, setting the culture. Those yeah. are things that any coach does. So the idea how is the GM need... going to set the culture over the coach? That makes right. zero sense. Right. So it just, to me, it's like the structure is a coach and then a sporting director of, above. Not, and and I, I, I agree with you that there should be, that Kate Margraf should be the U.S. Women's National Team GM and there should be a U.S. Men's National Team GM and, and that's it. And that's the structure. And you both you can report call, up. You can call them sporting director and sporting Yeah, sure. But you, you they both up. report up to uh, JT Batson. Yeah. Yeah. JT Batson. And that's how it works. Like that mm-hmm. to me is what would make the most amount of And sense. then you have that administrative side person that's sure. doing more of the nitty gritty and less sexy stuff. And they also report to the CEO. Right. And, and I think that would be fine. And, and Paul, to the point that you were talking about earlier about having a vision and trying to establish an identity, I think it's okay for the men and women to have two different identities. Of course, there should be they're, one, they're, one they of the should, teams. They should have two different identities. Yeah, the women's they're team is very the dominant team. <laughs> they're in very, very different places in the hierarchy of global soccer. Yeah. And so, like, they should have very different identities. Like, it wouldn't make sense to do it any differently than that. And And so I think that's fine, and you can have the men's side where, okay, we're working on these principles and we're going to have the women's side where, okay, we want to play this way. Generally speaking, there's going to be some overlap in that naturally, but I think it's fine if there's, if there's a disparate identity going on there. And and so I don't know. I think that, I think it sort of makes more sense to silo off a little bit. You can still have the, uh, you know, if I want to use an MBA buzzword, you can still have the synergies, right? You can still cross pollinate, with the sports science and the analytics and the medical staffs. And you can have different things that you learn from the men's side in one camp, bring them to the women's side in the next camp and then so on and so forth. But I think, I think it, I don't know. I think it makes more sense to do it that way and just have them report to the CEO, but we'll see how it all shakes out. Um, To your point, I just hope it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I mean, again, this goes to like, this plays it. I mean, ultimately, as we've said multiple times, the most important 
job that the, that Ernie Stewart had and that the next sporting director or GM, whatever you want to call it, will have is hiring the men's national team coach. And, you know, I'm just so curious to see in which direction this hire goes because the same things we talked about in regards to the salaries and, and desirability of this job, it applies to the men's coaching job too because you've got gold cups, maybe only one if you don't get hired till August, one gold cup, one maybe one Nations League. Maybe we have we don't know yet. Concacaf hasn't announced when the next Nations League will be, but if you're getting hired in August, you might be you might be missing it. (laughs) And then, so like, are you going to want to take a job to 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 be the men's national team coach in August of 2023 with one Gold Cup in 2025, and that's it? Maybe an outside chance at the Copa America in 2024, maybe not. You know, so does that is that an attractive job for Jose Mourinho or for Yogi Love? I don't know. So. Paul, the more, the more I think about this, the more I think that the coaching job is going to go to one of two different kinds of, of, of coach. It could be a young up and comer hungry to make their stamp in a job that maybe that a a big platform job that maybe that they wouldn't have the ability to get um, on the club level at this point in their career, or it's going to be maybe somebody a little bit older, maybe somebody that isn't working right now who maybe is very accomplished but is kind of looking for potentially one last ride off of the sunset. I mean, maybe I don't I think mean, like, I don't think you're getting like a top of the line elite current right now, top 10 coach in the world kind of guy for this job. Yeah. I, I, I would say like, it, it's, it's just very interesting to me how this process is going to play out. And my concern is you're having this, this period of six or seven months of interim manager and then a new manager is going to come in and you're going to have that period of transition time to try to have that manager learn more about the player pool figure out how they want to play do all that and you're going to be under this time crunch to get that transition done Mm -hmm. start playing the way you want to play get familiar with each other ahead of 2026 and so i i would expect that i would hope at least or i don't know the right I, i don't really have a hope for the national team job but i think that would be easier with a more experienced manager than it would be for a younger manager. But we have seen when you go look at some of the managers of national teams around the world, a lot of times they're they're not like the sexy names. They're they're people who get promoted in positions because of stuff like this and end up doing well. Like Gareth Southgate's a good example of that. Scaloni. Yeah, Scaloni is a great example of that. So I, I just I I I am after that with this departure, it just to me has like totally thrown everything up in the air. Where I, I had an idea of maybe like, okay, if a manager gets hired in March or April or May, like they'll have Nations League in June, they'll have a Gold Cup, you know, things will get figured out. The sporting director is the same. They'll have the ideas. Now it's like, it's like blank slate was used in the press conference today in like a blank canvas in a positive light. And I think there's just as much potential negative as there is potential positive there. Mm, I think there's more potential positive. Whether or not it will be fulfilled, that's a different question entirely one other thing that i wanted to say on this topic and i don't know how much more you want to get off your chest here paul but maybe we can talk about the uh the actual game that the u.s played on wednesday night against serbia in the final segment the important stuff in a minute or two here um there's going to be a lot of attention on this i mean we've spent 45 minutes talking about it um it is certainly important but 
But, and this is maybe, you know, a stupid or an obvious thing to say, what's going to drive whether or not the U.S. make the quarterfinals or the semifinals or even farther in 2026 is not necessarily the sporting director. We're talking about marginal improvements here at best from that position. The main thing that person is going to do is hire the coach who can have a real impact on the team, but it's my sort of opinion that most coaches do about as well as the talent that they have would indicate. Um, it's going to be the player pool. And this player pool, it's it's decent. It's solid, but it's still limited. And they could grow between now and the next three and a half years. And, and hopefully they will for the sake of the game in this country. Um, but, you know, just keep that in mind before you kind of get all twisted and freaking out about this. Yeah. The players are what they are. That doesn't change much, but the coach can impact that a lot. Yeah, they can. A coach can be a bigger drain than people realize. And then and maybe not, maybe people have felt like Burhalter was at holding this group back. I, yeah. I also don't buy that really. Yeah. I know you don't. So maybe, maybe that's the disconnect with me. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are like, well, if, if you switched Louis Van Hall and Greg Burhalter, then the U S would have won that game three, one. And, and I just don't believe that like for a second. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm an idiot though. I have been before. I'm sure I will be again. Uh, Paul, I will not be an idiot again though in this segment because it's over. We're going to take a quick break, come back, talk a little bit more about the national team. Maybe the game that happened on the field, the 2-1 loss to Serbia in SoCal on Wednesday night. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder, Paul. We've got some breaking news. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> Paul's a little overwhelmed, you guys. Paul, just lean into it, man. You don't need a. You don't need to have a life. Twenty twenty three, baby. Let's you go. Need to have a life. Um, we were planning to talk about you know. The U.S. Men's National Team 2-1 lost to Serbia, put a bow on Ernie Stewart, Brian McBride, all of that stuff. But a domino has fallen in the U.S. soccer Burhalter Reina gate. Claudio Reina, no longer sporting director of Austin FC. Paul, Austin FC just announced that Reina has transitioned into a technical advisor role. He had been the club's sporting director from its inception, left NYCFC, I believe, in 2019 to take over there, oversaw the expansion season of 2021 when they weren't great, and then 2022 when they grew in a significant way, making it to the Western Conference Final. Um, Interesting positioning of this. You know, we, I believe, had talked about on this very show that Austin kind of needed to consider what they wanted to do with Reyna, given his involvement in 
texting Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride during the World Cup and potentially, you know, revealing some details in that phone call with Ernie Stewart as well and just kind of his general conduct and behavior. Later details emerged, first reported by our buddy Doug McIntyre at Fox Sports and later confirmed by us at The Athletic about Reyna texting and sort of voicing his concerns and frustrations to U.S. soccer officials during the U-17 World Cup when Reyna, Gio Reyna, was there playing under Rafa Vicky. Um, so this is, this is how it shakes out, is, is a press release where Anthony Precourt, Austin FC owner, saying he's grateful for Claudio's contributions to the club and the community, committed to the cause of building a club, Claudio Reyna getting a quote in there, grateful that Anthony and the organization have given me the opportunity to scale back my role and responsibilities while continuing to contribute to the success of a club that I love, kind of carries on in that same vein. Um, Reyna, like I said, is going to remain with Austin FC as a technical advisor. What that exactly means, no one knows. <laughs> um, head coach Josh Wolf is going to be the chief soccer officer on an interim basis. Um, and Sean Rubio, who has kind of worked as the number two in the sporting department there, is going to be the interim sporting director. That's that's the latest, Paul. Uh, I don't think it's a shock to either of us that, that Claudio Arena is no longer sporting director of Austin FC. I think we had a Slack thread going about it with a few of our colleagues not an hour ago where I was like, yeah, yeah, I think, I think Claudio might, something might happen here. So something happened. What do you make of it? I think what surprises me out of this announcement, the only thing that surprises me is that Claudio is still involved in the club in, in any capacity as an advisor or not. I mean, usually, I mean, I don't want to speculate as to what that means, but I think it's, it's, um, it's the part that surprises me. I'm not surprised that he's no longer the sporting director in the wake of all of this. We, we have gone over this before in the past on this podcast at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, it was creating a really awkward working environment considering the connections to Greg Berhalter that existed at that club. Anthony Precourt, the owner was the owner of the Columbus crew when Greg Berhalter was the coach and sporting director. Josh Wolf was a longtime assistant to Greg Berhalter in both Columbus and with the U S men's national team. Um, I, I can't imagine Sebastian Berhalter was there as a player he was there on loan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was there on loan. Um, I know there was like a conspiracy theory that this all started because Claudio Reyna didn't buy him from Columbus at the end of the one year loan. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but hey, I, maybe it's true. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, what it was showing is that obviously there was a lot of connections to Greg Berhalter between, you know, once, Precourt went to Austin, right? Like his lifelong friend was the sporting director. His assistant was the head coach. Um, we see that a lot with, with your coaching trees and things like that. And when a relationship breaks down and in the manner in which it does, it's not exactly a, uh, something that a club wants to beat its chest about, you know, why Claudio's in the news right now. Um, I, it felt like it was headed in this direction. Um, yep. I, I'll be interested to see if they stick with this structure. If, if, you know, we, I was just talking to somebody else about like the number of people left in this, in this league that are both coach and CSO. It's like Bob Bradley and Bruce arena. And now and Josh, Josh Wolf. Wolf, you know, that's a lot yeah. for anyone to do. It's tough for Bob Bradley. It's tough for Bruce arena. They both have people there. And obviously Sean Rubio is going to be that for Josh Wolf. But I, I wonder whether, you know, Sean Rubio is going to go through a transition year and then get elevated to that sporting director role or whether yeah. they'll eventually look for somebody there. Um, but obviously, Peter Vermes too. Look, look here, 
and Peter Burmese, thank you. I mean, another veteran who also has Brian Bliss there um, assisting him on the day-to-day and the negotiating and all of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 not surprising. I, and um, it's just continuing to show the, the ripple effect of what happened in Qatar and, and in the days and weeks after it. One phone call. A lot of ramifications. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of crazy the tentacles on this scandal and the consequences from, uh, you know, a split second or not a split second. I shouldn't call it that, but from one decision. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, Paul, not exactly a surprise. Austin had taken Claudio Reyna out of their roster-related press releases. Normally, he was a part of all of those with a canned quote. Um, since this scandal broke in early January, a few weeks ago, he was no longer in there. It was either Wolf or Rubio getting the, the statement in the, uh, in the press release. Um, I don't know, Paul, if, I mean, we'll see what happens with the investigation and maybe time heals all wounds, but I, I would be a little bit surprised if Claudio Reno ever got another top job in MLS and not really just because of this scandal, but just because like, I don't think he doesn't have a bad reputation necessarily among other sporting directors, but like no one is necessarily putting him in their like top five either. So, um, I mean, who knows, who knows what, what, what time we'll have in store for us, but I would be a bit surprised at this point if he ever gets another top job. Yeah. Uh, but you know, just, it's just a lot happening in one day. You know, a lot of leadership positions that are linked to that story that are leaving some because the better jobs have come available or different jobs, some because, um, you know, of, I well, think who knows why yeah. <laughs> I mean, they didn't tell us. Yeah. <laughs> um, advising, so should, should we talk for a moment about, about the game? From, from I can sum up my thoughts on it. I think Zendejas, if he commits to the U S will add depth to the actual senior squad. All right. Well, let's, can we wind back a second? It was a two, one loss. Yeah. to Serbia. Brandon Vasquez had the goal, gave the U.S. a 1-0 lead right around the half-hour mark. Serbia scored on either side of halftime, close to the end of the first, right at the beginning of the second. U.S. had way more chances, controlled a lot of the play, but couldn't convert anything, and were sloppy on the two goals in, in a big, big way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, Zendejas is a guy who I think immediately would help the depth of the national team, like yeah. immediately. Um, other guys, I was surprised that Kate Cowell looked as good as he did. He, he was good. Uh, I didn't expect that to be, to be honest. And, and maybe he becomes the guy who kind of stands out or surprises in a January camp that takes the opportunity and runs with it. Um, you know, other than that, I don't know that there was anyone else that really like popped, popped for me, um, in this game. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, we, I, I felt like if Zendeja started to look like he could be something like, we know his quality. And I think that's an area where the, in the next cycle, the U S could use competition for depth. So it would be a really a positive outcome. If, if Kate Cowell did take the opportunity and if Zendejas did commit fully to the U S like that, that's, you know, two more players that compete at, at a position of strength for the U S. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Brandon Vasquez scored a very nice goal. It was nice to see that kind of play from a number nine, um, getting on the end of a good cross from Julian Gressel, Fantastic header, really. Yeah. Um, inside against the a good post, goalkeeper. Against a very good goalkeeper, Georgie Petrovich from New England Revolution. Um, defensively, there were some issues for the U.S., for sure. Uh, midfielders, you know, not as good as you would have hoped. I thought 
Um, Aiden Morris and Paxton Pomacall had off nights. Uh, Alan Senora, you know, you you saw some glimpses. Yeah. He plays fast. He plays decisively, but like he he didn't have it really. Um, but you, you kind of see why he's intriguing. Um, other than that, I don't know. Slonino was good. Um, you know, made a couple of big saves. Uh, so that that was positive. But other than that, it was, you know, we'll see. I'm, I'm curious oh, to see if Jalen Neal gets some run in MLS this year. Yeah. Well, that's that's crazy to to get a senior national team cap before a, before your MLS LA Galaxy debut. A, a debut. So that's wild. <laughs> that's where we are um, today. <laughs> Paul, you seem a little shaken to the core, my man. You all right? Well, you know, Sam, we're gonna we're gonna sign off of this podcast and then we're gonna get back to work. So let's 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 rock and roll. Paul, cry. Um, thanks for listening to Allocation Disorder, sponsored by Paul Tenorio's Salty Salty Tears. Uh, we're with you next week. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> we'll be back next week. What a ride. Thanks for listening.